Hello everyone and welcome to a brand new episode of the Indian Art Podcast where we interview some of India's next best analytical and creative minds who are not only revolutionizing their own field but at the same time transforming India's entrepreneurial ecosystem one step at a time. Our guest for the day is the founding partner of India Internet Fund. Founded in 2011 as one of the first few venture capital funds, IIF focuses on early stage technology investments. Previously, he has worked with McKinsey and Co, Goldman Sachs, and the Government of India. He is a graduate of Harvard University and the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. In addition to all of this, our guest is the author of the recently published book, The Great Tech Game. His book focuses on how technology is not only shaping our daily lives but the fate of nations as well. We have with us Anirudh Suri. Let us jump right into the conversation. Hi, Anirudh. I hope you're all settled in. I'm I'm great. No, thanks for uh, having me on the show, Gautam. Thank thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being here. Okay, so let us uh, jump into the conversation, Anirudh. You have had a fascinating career. You know, ranging from working with large corporations such as Goldman Sachs and McKinsey to founding the India Internet Fund. With each of these experiences, you know, sh- sort of playing into how you know your worldview is that technology is shaping up to be a critical factor, not just at a micro level, but at a macro level as well. So, in your own words, as the co-founder of IIF, tell us your Indian art origin story. Sure, um, you know. So, I think as Gautam, you uh, very kindly pointed out, I've had the uh, privilege, I would really say, of being able to work in um, very different contexts, right? So, I've spent some time working, as you mentioned, at uh, firms like McKinsey. Um, I've spent a little bit of time working with. Uh, think tanks in Washington D.C. working on foreign policy issues. Um, a brief stint with the Indian government uh, in the IT ministry, what is now called METI. And of course, for the last decade or so, I've been uh, working in the tech VC and startup world through India Internet Fund and some startups that we incubated. So I've had the opportunity to work in different contexts and in different countries. Right, my stints at McKinsey and Goldman were in London and. New York, respectively, uh, so on and so forth. So I think the 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 vantage point that that's afforded me is that I've looked and seen very closely how technology is shaping different sectors uh, very differently as well. Right. So when I spent time at McKinsey, for example, I was working with many companies in the U.S. that were at that point. This is now I'm talking about the 2007-8 time frame. They were starting to Get threatened by or disrupted by uh, emerging tech startups of the time, right? Whether it was in the retail sector or in books sector, etc. The the juggernaut of technology from a business standpoint was trying to disrupt established industries, right? That's something I saw very closely. When I worked in the Indian government, of course, in the IT ministry, there it was a very different vantage point. We were working on schemes that were trying to. Ensure that the internet penetration increased in the country, internet access increased in the country, and uh, through various schemes that the government had put out, we were seeing how very challenging that still was from an infrastructure standpoint, from a policy standpoint. But at the same time, how important it was to make sure that internet access and penetration actually went deeper than just the cities, right? Because it was really shaping new opportunities for people who had access to the internet. And and at the same time, it was denying those opportunities to those who didn't have access, right? And and now for the last decade at IIF and through startups I've been engaged with, I've seen very closely how much of an engine of growth 
technology can be right for a country like india i think it's quite obvious now over the last decade that tech and as i argue in my book as well that tech is really the new engine of economic growth it's really the new wealth of nations right so you know my my entire i would say the last decade decade and a half has given me very different vantage points on how tech is shaping our world and how it will probably continue to at the same time what challenges we are likely to continue facing it's not going to be a smooth ride uh, for everyone necessarily definitely definitely anurag so uh, let's actually you know jump to the topic of the day now that is your book the great tech game okay which is absolutely incredible by the way uh, so your book the great tech game talks about how you know technology is not just uh, deeply interconnected with the global economy but how geopolitics is well and uh, as you mentioned in your book that you know planet earth has gone through different geopolitical periods such as pax romana pax islamica pax mongolica pax britannica and pax americana and now you mention that the current period we are in is that we are now living through a period known as pax technologica so for our viewers and listeners what is pax technologica and what is you know the great tech game <laughs> Sure, sure. Um, no, thank you for asking that question. Let me lay out at least the the concept behind the Great Tech Game and Pax Technologica for for all of us. You know, as you uh, rightly pointed out, Gautam, we've lived through at least humanity has. Of course, planet Earth is much much <laughs> older than us, but yes, humanity we've gone through different eras that can be uh, broadly classified into. the ones that you mentioned right uh, in fact in the book i go even further behind pax romana where i talk about the great agri game the great trading game and it's really during the great trading game that i would say pax romana started but the great agri game was the first great game uh, as i conceive it in in uh, in our human history that at least we know about a fair bit which started over 10000 years ago where society went through a massive shift because of the introduction of agriculture and you know many folks like yuval harari and others have written about this so i'm definitely not the first to talk about this but my argument is that every time there's this new era most of us tend to see it from an economic standpoint that the economics changed right in that era the economic productive activity or the nature of economic activity changed and while that's true my argument in the book is that with each of these great games in history in our human history great agri game the great trading game the great uh, industrialization and colonization game uh, and more recently the great uh, even great capitalism game i argue that each of these great games you have a massive shift in not just economic activity but also geopolitical power right the center of geopolitical power will shift often you have new winners and losers emerge in each of these eras or great games and also each of these great games build on the previous one so you don't necessarily replace completely the previous game but it, the new game in a way gets added on top as a layer and whichever nations regions people under have understood these games well in the past and have understood that the game has changed and start to play and build capabilities for the new game have typically ended up being winners in the new game right whereas the winners in the previous game if they don't understand that transition or are willing to make that transition uh, they often end up being losers in the new game even though they were winners in the previous one right um, and, and and so i argue that today 
the game has even changed from the great capitalism game of which of course the us and countries like that were the winners prior to that the great industrialization colonization game clearly the winners were western european nations that were the colonial and industrial powers of the time right and and i argue that even though india has lost some of these more recent great games we must keep a very close eye on what the great tech game is shaping up to be and 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 switch to playing the great tech game and not continue focusing only on the previous <laughs> great game right uh, understood so that's the great tech game and i'll make a quick point about pax technologica versus pax americana you know pax britannia pax romana pax mongolica pax americana all of these terms are now pax technologica actually don't just mean the fact that there's this era that you know for example america is dominant in so pax americana actually means the period of time during which america for example was the dominant power or is the dominant power but is also as a result ensuring that there is a peace relatively peaceful period prevailing in the world understood during which economic development can happen during which trade can happen and so on and so forth so it actually refers to the peaceful time during such a great game uh that that allows other nations or other regions also to develop rapidly the yeah. question over here so while uh, there is one dominant say establishment say pax in pax americana that would be the america uh, that would be america and america's allies but i i think uh, i think during all of these periods whether it was pax romana or pax mongolica or pax Britan- britannica or even pax americana there would also be some losers if if say americana was the peak there would also be you know for example during the britannica period britannica period uh, say the western countries uh, the western european countries were the, were say at their peak but at the same time the the asian countries or say you know the african countries which were actually colonized they were at the lowest and i think similarly each period has had extreme winners and losers per se hmm. no absolutely absolutely gautam that's exactly right that typically when there are winners obviously on the other side there are the losers right colonial right? era as you rightly mentioned during pax britannica of course countries that were colonized in asia in africa in latin america were the clear losers at that time because not because they might not have grown but because relative to the winners of that time they were growing much slowly and much more slowly and also they weren't necessarily uh being able to take advantage of their own productive activities right a lot of our in the case of india i think we all know that a lot of the economic gains of whatever productive activities that india was engaged in or indians were engaged in during the colonial era the gains did not accrue to us <laughs> right right the right. gains accrued to the people of the time hence right. they were the winners right uh, no you're absolutely right that there are always losers associated uh, with that period as well right and that's my point in fact the game will similarly have a set of winners and losers and right. you don't uh, want to be on the losing side because you know the stake of the 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 livelihoods and the well-being and the uh, prospects of a billion and over a billion people now are at stake you know at least from the indian context <laughs> but if you think about it from a stage obviously even bigger stakes are at uh, play definitely definitely so you were you were talking about pax technologica let, let let's continue that thought <laughs> yeah so the only point i was making there was that the peaceful period that technology has now ruled in a way or has been shaping our world for the last few decades also seems to be coming to an end the peaceful period okay. right we are seeing a lot more now conflict okay. over 
technological competition playing out in the world right so the last 20 30 years have seen almost a rise of the internet in a way that internet markets have developed in many different markets globally right the american startup ecosystem the chinese startup ecosystem the european one the indian one uh, the southeast asian one right um, and you have early signs in africa and latin america as well of startup ecosystems starting to come up in those regions as well but this has largely been while the internet battles have not been massive or dominant but now internet and tech driven battles are coming to a point where we might be reaching an era where tech unfortunately or counterintuitively also causes battles and also breaks the relative peace that prevailed in the world for the last 2 3 4 decades right um, you're finding that the us and china are now at loggerheads both these countries are trying to be the digital superpower of the world right and for china it's it's very clearly a way to leapfrog against the us or uh, uh, sort of you know ahead of the us the us understands that if the china tech story becomes bigger stronger more dynamic than the us tech story then that will have ramifications for the rest of the us economy us military power us geopolitical power and hence now the us and china seem to be engaged in a very i would say very consequential technological competition right uh, that will have right. ramifications on the rest of the world as well uh, and i think that's something that we have to have a eye on now uh, whether we are in the startup world or not you know uh, you you found that in the last few years this us china battle has has had ramifications in the indian startup ecosystem as well india has banned several chinese apps when it came to 5g infrastructure like the us and some other countries we have also as a country said that we don't want to be reliant on chinese manufacturing companies when it comes to 5g infrastructure which is obviously the next wave of tech infrastructure that will get built in india and so we are finding and that has ramifications for startups as well right very clearly some startups have benefited from the fact that their chinese uh, competitors or equivalents have now not gotten access to the indian market so it has benefited some but at the same time we've also i would say on the other side lost out on a couple of things one is obviously capital that was coming in from china and chinese big tech firms into indian companies many prominent indian startups without naming them necessarily uh, obviously had chinese investors that were the major investors <laughs> in those companies right right um, they lost access to capital in a way further capital and then the other i think loss that has happened as a result is is that the two startup ecosystems were really starting to interact a lot more you know uh, right. back in 2015 16 i saw very clearly that suddenly the indian startup founders uh, and even indian venture capitalists were now no longer looking just to the west right for collaboration for cross pollination of ideas um and and so on and so forth the, the focus had also shifted east right so a lot of indian startup founders a lot of indian venture capitalists were going to china spending time there understanding their business models uh and so on and so forth and vice versa right and i i think that piece also we've sort of lost out on in a way because of these geopolitical and tech battles that threatened to right right mark the end of <laughs> the peaceful period right i think uh, i think you very rightly mentioned about how i think in today's day and age it would actually be not be considered an accomplishment or not even validation but would be considered a negative point if say 
an Indian startup was closely associating with a Chinese counterpart. I, I don't think it would be seen as a positive in today's day and age because of today's geopolitical climate. And uh, I think that also that also hinders the Indian startup ecosystem because, you know, we, we are essentially cutting off access to capital from, say, a very, uh, very economically powerful uh, region of the world. But at the same time, given the current geopolitical circumstances, you also do, uh, I think the nation state does not want to, you know, uh, does not want Indian startups to actually have that kind of, uh, you know, control or say, owe that kind of, you know, favor to those, to, to, to that part of the world. And I think that that closely interlinks to the, you know, the, the tech and the, and the society perspective of both the things. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Uh, let me let me move to my next question now. So I'm not sure if this is the right example, but uh, you know, while I was reading your book, a prominent example of the themes that you talk about, uh, I felt could, could also be seen in the current semiconductor market of the world, right? And how you know nations are competing against each other to maintain dominance in the semiconductor space. From you know China trying to control the raw materials itself, I think the, the rare earth materials uh, that go into semiconductor manufacturing, to Taiwan being a big player in it, and how you know China and Taiwan do not see eye to eye on a lot many things, as well as you know US's uh, technological expertise and competitive advantage uh, in the manufacturing uh, with with the capitalist private industry setup over there, and. Uh, so, you know, uh, what is your view on this example and how do you think, you know, this showcases Pax Technologica? I have another example in mind. I'll come to that next. But I want to ask you, I want to, you know, pick your brain on this one first. Yeah, no, so in many ways, I think, Gautam, what's happening is that the nature of the economic engine of the world is changing. Right. right? Uh, it is no longer uh, the conversation as far as raw materials is no longer uh, contained to, let's say, um, oil, right? The geopolitics of our world is now shifting to materials that are very core to tech, right? And the tech uh, tech world, right? Or what I call the great tech game. And semiconductors, as you rightly mentioned, are a key component of it, right? I think now, over the last year or two, many of us now understand this. Of course, this conversation has been going on for over a decade, I would say almost in the geopolitical circles and in the tech manufacturing circles, that semiconductors today are at the core of not just, by the way, electronics, right? And these rare earths are not just at the core of just electronic devices like our phones and laptops, but also very importantly, they're at the core of even solar cells. Right. Right. right? And, uh, you know, as, as I think as many of us know, there's a transition underway. I think we can maybe not agree, many of us might not agree on the pace at which that transition is happening on the energy side. But there's a clear transition away from fossil fuels and uh, oil-driven and oil -driven, uh, economy, uh, right? And so it's clear that in the future, renewable energy and of that renewable energy, solar energy will clearly be a big chunk. It's going to be a big driver of economic activity, right? So your industry will be powered by it, your Homes will be powered, right? In fact, your EVs would be powered, right? Right, And so any component like semiconductors that's going into such a core part of your economy obviously then has geopolitical implications, right? I'll give you a clear example from history as well. So, you know, when uh, the British were very also very clear when during the colonial era, during the British Pax Britannica, as we talk about, 
they were very clear on certain raw materials that they needed access to that they were going to deny right uh, we have all i think heard stories about how tea their right. consumption of tea ended up causing uh, them to go to war with china right ended up causing them to grow tea in india right because their dependence on tea was becoming a geopolitical weakness for them vis-a-vis -vis china at the time for example in many ways today lithium or rare materials like lithium raw materials like lithium are now at the core of many battles you know you'll be surprised even i was surprised by the way gotham i didn't realize until recently that even in ukraine by the way ukraine has okay. a big uh, one of the biggest reserves of lithium and oh. uh, while in russia ukraine crisis we've been talking about various other motivations right uh, behind the recent crisis not many have spoken about the fact that there is ukraine actually is one of the biggest reserves of lithium as well not right. just of edible okay. oil and other i think we've been talking about so i think that these raw materials these rare earth materials are now increasingly causing geopolitical battles right you mentioned china taiwan that's exactly right people say that even with the china taiwan crisis there's one dimension which is historical that china wants taiwan to be reintegrated into chinese mainland but of course there's also now uh, another component which is that taiwan also happens to be one of the largest semiconductor uh, manufacturing countries in the world right tsmc is is yes. probably as valuable if not valuable than i would say standard oil in its day or the eastern right um so massive implication but it also by the way on the flip side it's also leading to interesting friendships so there's not just the negative ramifications there's also positive ones in a way where india australia for example i've written about this recently also <clears throat> in an op-ed that india and australia are coming together and getting closer <clears throat> recently in recent years and one of the reasons is after china the second largest reserves of rare earth material is in uh, australia so if india wants to become a semiconductor player which india is now trying to to build fabs in india and have have a slightly more uh, i would say resilient supply chain for semiconductors uh, then new friendships start to happen right? <laughs> like the ones with india and australia so i wrote about right. or you know it's interesting that india and australia are not transitioning from being uh cricket rivals to actually now being uh, <laughs> natural partners on the globe it's an interesting transition caused by for example semiconductor <laughs> partly uh, another another similar example that you know comes to mind um is actually the you know the space race that took place uh, uh in the past century essentially which was in parallel to the cold war between us and russia and now in today's day and age the new space race would actually be between private big tech companies that is you know elon musk and spacex or you know jeff bezos and blue origin and uh, what is your view on this on on this entire paradigm shift that is taken from you know two states competing to now say for example say you know two private players competing you know i think the space piece is a very interesting uh, domain where now as you rightly said gotham you know in the 60s when the space race and the cold war were at their peak between the us and the and the then ussr they those two nations at that point decided that we will not colonize space <clears throat> we will not no nation will ever be able to stake claim to any parts of let's say the moon or mars or 
any part of you know the space beyond planet earth what's interesting now i think gotham is there are a lot of signs emanating from various countries whether it's the us whether it's china whether it's others that this space race now unfortunately might no longer observe that agreement okay of the past and there are increasingly signs that suggest that governments in several nations are letting private players now explore space and build uh, at least space stations or base stations on the moon etc as a launching pad to even get to mars right right, right? and what we are finding is that there's most likely going to be at some point or the other now conflict over who builds a base station on what part of the moon right on okay. which side of the moon because there are certain favorable sides of the moon there are certain favorable parts of the moon that lend themselves better as a launch pad for further space exploration right, right. so i think it's might be unfortunate might you know i think it, i hope that it doesn't come to that but i think that a space war is now starting to become more likely possibly than it was in the 60s 70s where it seems like there was at least agreement that you know as nations we will not colonize space but now with the entry of the private players who were largely driven by commercial considerations for them now extracting whether it's very valuable materials that are now available in space right for them to extract that bring that back or use parts of the moon to further do space explorations on to let's say to mars etc these will largely become commercial considerations and we know that in the past also gotham i talk about this in the book the east india company came to india not as a geopolitical player but as a trading player right. as a commercial player pulled into geopolitics they were pulled into military conflict because they had to protect their economic commercial interests in it right um right. and and so i worry that today we might end up in a similar situation where we might be doing these explorations from a relatively benign commercial <laughs> standpoint but right it's a big <laughs> you know any <laughs> any uh, any realist uh, person will know that geopolitical conflict military conflict and other conflicts then emerge right so i worry right. that uh, the space dimension will become a source of big conflict again between the major powers i understand right 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 no that 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 makes perfect sense how you know commercial considerations are followed by geopolitical conflicts or or arms conflicts or you know or tensions that 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 were initially not expected to be there and i think uh, i think all colonized nations are a good example of that <laughs> but uh, yes that's right and one of the things that i talk about in the book also is this idea of digital colonialism right right um where there are fears today at least among certain quarters especially in the developing world countries like you know you rightly saying that were colonized in the past right because you'll know that even in india many things are perceived from a perspective that we don't want to be colonized again that that was a terrible 200 250 years of our history Understood. Right. we don't want that to repeat so a lot of resistance towards foreign companies foreign powers uh, is often from the mindset of the perspective that we don't want that part of our history to repeat right we are, at least our views are colored or shaped by that and and i think now there are some concerns that you know when it comes to our data when it comes to our markets we don't want those to be 
dominated by foreign powers in a way that prevents the benefits of that economic activity driven by data or driven by tech markets right. to not accrue back to the people who are generating right. those resources right. in the first place. Uh, and, and I think that's a reasonable concern, but that has to be balanced, you know, in India and in other colonized nations, sometimes anti-colonial um, agendas, or anti-colonial um, arguments often become emotional ones. Right? And right, rightly right. so, because those were terrible times. But they should not, in my view, be used as an excuse or as a way to completely uh, disconnect our countries from the rest of the world. Right? Understood. The, the responsibility right. is to disconnect to save ourselves from potential uh, <laughs> right. dominance. Or something. The response has to be how do we make sure that we don't repeat the mistakes we made in the past and make sure we are able to engage with the rest of the world on an equal footing. Right. And so whatever right. we need to do to do that, that's what we need to be doing. Not that we will become protectionist or that we will close ourselves off because then actually we just end up losing the game altogether because we're not playing the game. <laughs> you know, <then> we're <laughs> living in our own bubbles. And right. That's also not a good response. Definitely. Definitely. Let us, you know, move forward to uh, another section of your book, you know. So I believe there's a section in a book that is, you know, setting the setting the rules of the great tech game. And uh, there is a chapter over there where you focus on how, you know, nation states are competing with big tech companies. I think you start off that chapter with a quote from Mark Zuckerberg where he says that, you know, Facebook is more like a government than a company. And uh, when I was reading this chapter, the one thing that stayed on my mind constantly was how, you know, there is a conflict between... Uh, between these two parties and I think one of the primary reasons of that conflict is you know competition and antitrust and how you know governments for the sake of the end customer must always you know ensure that big tech doesn't become too big and that you know the markets they're governing uh, are always you know competitive rather than a monopoly or an oligopoly uh, so keeping that in mind as well as you know recapping chapter of that book uh, what do you think is the future of this conflict between government and big tech yeah. No, so I think that uh, this goes back exactly to what we just discussed, that you want to be able to play on an equal footing. Right. right. And, and and for that, you have to set some rules of the game. Right. Uh, before you set the rules of the game, you have to understand the game. <laughs> right. Uh, which is why I first lay out what the game is actually looking like on the economic side, on the geopolitical side, on the military side. Before I say, actually, now let's talk about setting the rules of this game. And the rules of the game have to be set at two levels. As I say in that section, right? one is at the global level and right. the second is at the national level. At the national level, there's a battle going on between governments and big tech uh, in many countries of the world today. India, Australia, UK, Russia, China, all of Europe, America, right? And, and pretty much most nations of the world are facing this conflict because big tech firms are becoming so powerful, so influential, so rich so technologically capable that today they understand society and the economy better in many ways than right. governments do. Right. right. See, historically, governments were the, uh, the, the gatekeepers of data about the country, data about the society, data about citizens, data about economic activity, etc. Right? You could argue that RBI knew more about finance flows in the country than uh, a given bank. Right, right. Uh, RBI had that micro mac, macro view, and individual banks had the micro. View. 
of what was going on in the economy, let's say. Or an individual corporate had that micro view, but the finance ministry or the consumer affairs ministry uh, had the macro view. Understood. Now that's no longer the case. Right? Now in many ways, some of the big tech firms, e-commerce firms, fintech firms, search platforms, social media firms, some of these conglomerates that cover many of these domains actually potentially have a much better, deeper, more accurate, more real-time view of society and the economy than governments do. Right. right? Okay. And that's an example to show how big tech firms are actually challenging the authority, the legitimacy, the role of governments in our nations. Right? And to me, that's at the core of the battle. The battle is about who should be running certain functions of the state. The state has been very clear in most countries that we are not in the business of doing business. Right. As long as we're doing business, there's no problem typically the state has. The state will benefit from the taxes and from the economic activity and jobs that a business will generate. The problem comes when the private firms start to step onto the shoes of governments. Right. So cryptocurrency, for example, you know, the state pushes back against cryptocurrency because currency is a key, what I call a key sovereign function that was always the domain of the state. Right. At least in the last hundred years. You know, you right. go back a, a little bit more in uh, history, Gautam, you realize that that was not always the case. There were multiple currencies typically in, uh, in, in existence at a given time, if you go back into history. But the last 150 years, the state has managed to get control of currency as a sovereign exclusive function today. and today it doesn't want big tech or crypto currency uh, platforms to take away that exclusive control right? so this battle is playing out in so many different ways that you know when you ask me what is the future of this conflict I'll, I'll say two three things one is this conflict is in stage one or two let's say today this is a multi-stage conflict right the first stage was the big tech firm started to show that they had become powerful governments realized it Second step, which was the last year or so, across the world, governments have pushed back, either in the form of antitrust regulation, fines, right? You have so many instances now in Europe of European uh, Union fining Google, fining Facebook, et cetera, for monopolistic activities or, uh, or, or tracking too much data that they didn't have to otherwise, et cetera. Right? That's the state pushing back. India, we've seen that also, by the way, Australia has seen that, the US has seen it. And so I think stage two, almost the governments have been winning in a way. They've been putting big tech firms sort of back into uh, uh, their commercial domain. But this is a multi-stage game. The big tech firms are very smart. They have a lot at stake. Billions and billions are at stake, if not trillions now. And so they'll find ways to compete strategically still. They'll, they, they, you know, the recent signs are that stage three will potentially be a slightly more um, synergistic existence where big tech right. firms will say, here, we will help you on XYZ things. In Ukraine, for example, big tech firms, in a way, helped. US big tech firms came to the help of the US government and other European governments and said, here, we will help you in the cyber defense of Ukraine. Right? Microsoft had a big security team that was helping cyber defense activities in Ukraine, for example. Right? Apple said, we will withdraw from these markets right? in Russia, etc. So big right. tech firms right. and the governments are, are, are now at a stage where they are, I think, more cooperating than fighting right this is right. my way my view but i think mm -hmm. conflict will arise again right because now governments will try and push right. back too much and then 
That's why I call it a tug of war because I believe that this will continue a little bit, right? Over right. multiple stages. Um, the other point I'll make about the future of this conflict is, you know, from a citizen standpoint, from a societal standpoint, it's very important that this competition continues between right. tech firms. From, from the standpoint of individual citizens and a society, actually, it's very important that these two large entities, right? Now, from a citizen standpoint, these are two large entities that both, in a way, control and shape our lives, governments as well as big tech. Right. If they come together too much <laughs> and get too aligned, then you know we'll have a backlash from a citizen sort of bottoms up citizen and societal standpoint. They'll say, no, you're monitoring us too much, you're controlling XYZ too much, etc. Right. So there'll again be a backlash now, this time from a citizen standpoint. So almost it's a triangle, right? And you kind of want a balance to be maintained between governments, big tech firms, and citizens or society, as I call it. Right. If two of these get together too closely. My worry is that, you know, then you are in a position where it's almost like the British crown and the East India company aligning to dominate India and India doesn't have, uh, doesn't stand a star, star chance as a society at that point. Then similarly today, if big tech firms and the US government were to get together, it would make things very difficult for citizens and society to maintain their individual liberties, their fundamental rights in a transparent way. Right. And so in, in my hope is that some kind of healthy tension and conflict remains between these firms. Not unhealthy, right, of course, but healthy competition should be there so that this tug of war should continue in a way so that right. the balance is made. Definitely, definitely. That makes sense. While you were, you know, answering my question, I was actually at the back of my head, one thing was playing is that how these themes that are currently playing in big tech and what we expect to you know see happen in the future for big tech have actually played in the recent history itself when we look at the oil industry for example that you know uh, how how say for example a company like exxon mobil was was, was i think became too big like uh, how a nation state would describe it as too big and how you know uh, exxon mobil some some even speculate is is responsible for you know a lot of geopolitical events taking place uh, uh, throughout the world whether it was, you know, uh, uh, I think there is even a, I think there is a book uh, called Private Empire, which, which you know, delves into this uh, much deeper. But, uh, and, you know, not just that, but how, you know, countries utilized oil as not only as a resource, but, uh, but as a, you know, as a point of contention between each other. And uh, I think that oil has, for example, played into a lot of geopolitical events uh, and, you know, private players in oil we look at standard oil and how standard oil became too big in the us and then eventually you know uh eventually there was i think the first case of uh, phase of you know first case of competition law taking place in and say the first big companies a big big oil company breaking up into smaller parts and and uh those themes are like very prominent in the oil space in general like you rightly mentioned uh yeah no right. there's lot. Lots of parallels in the past, right? I mean, one of the things I've tried to do in the book, Gautam, is right. to show the history is repeating itself. Definitely. Of what we are, let me say not none, but very little of what we're going through today is new. Right. right. This right. has happened before. Right. So rightly say it has happened in the case of oil, telecom, etc. But right. even more importantly, it has happened, uh, as I've mentioned a couple of times, in the case of the colonial era as well. Um, and, you know, uh, you can also look into history to learn so many more lessons that today we sometimes miss right. if we don't have the historical linkages being created in our right. public discourse. 
I talk, uh, you might have uh, read this section. I talk about how the telegraph, yes, which is in many ways the precursor to the internet, right? Uh, we went from the telegraph to the telephone to the internet in, in many ways. The telegraph was leveraged geopolitically and economically by the British, who were the dominant uh, player in the telegraph industry, right? And at their peak during Pax Britannica again. Uh, over a century, century and a half ago, they used their dominance of the telegraph infrastructure globally. Right? They were the ones, they had, I think, a major, like, uh, I don't know the exact numbers right now, but I think 80% of the telegraph industry was controlled by British firms, I believe. Might be a different number, but big chunk. And, you know, when, when the war broke out between uh, U, uh, the UK and Germany, World War I and World War II, on both occasions, the British, whose firms were the ones who could repair these underwater telegraph cables, they the one of the first things they did was cut off telegraph <laughs> access for Germany, right? Parts that they could right. to herd communications with other parts of the world, right? So, right. And, and 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 so I draw these parallels that you know that has happened before. Telegraph cables have been cut before when it came to war, right? And so today. We again have a massive, you know, while the internet is sometimes seen as a virtual thing, ultimately it's driven by these undersea cables that have been laid globally that very well actually very almost point to point map exactly the telegraph cable map. I have a map in the book also about this. That right, shows right. The telegraph and the internet cables of today. And, uh, you know, the, one of the first sections, uh, chapters in my geopolitics section talks about this, that the security of that internet infrastructure is key. We're not talking about it enough. It has happened before that that internet infrastructure or the telegraph infrastructure was weaponized in some ways or geopoliticized in some ways when it came to battle and conflict. And it can happen again. Right. Right. In countries like India and others were not major players in the repair industry of undersea cables or in setting up of these cables must have a plan in place. If tomorrow conflict breaks out, it might not just be on the physical borders of India. It could be threatening your digital borders in a way, what I call digital borders. Um, and then you have to be prepared for that because it could very well happen. By the way, it's already happening now. There, There's a lot of conversation and worries in the US and in Europe that other countries, adversarial nations could cut off internet cables that link these countries, right? Even the powerful countries. Right. Right. So uh, this is a very real threat, but history can help us learn these lessons. Right. right? And so we must look to history, whether it's the case of standard oil, Telecom, etc., or how tech becomes geopoliticized when it's right. conflict. During the peace time, it's <laughs> all plays uh, <laughs> out very differently. Definitely, definitely. Uh, Anirudh, before I move to my next question, you know, I just wanted to take take a minute to actually, you know, just compliment this book because, uh, you know, I personally am a big, you know, history nut. Uh, I love reading about geopolitics. I love reading about the global economy. I love reading about technology. I work in the startup space myself. And this book just lies perfectly at the intersection of all of these, you know, topics. And, and just, it's just a fascinating book to, you know, go through. And I personally recommend uh, the great tech game to anyone who is, you know, interested in any one of these themes. And, you know, just to understand how, how the world has shaped up over the past, you know, couple of centuries, in fact. <laughs> and, you know, what we can expect from the future itself. Where can we see society going towards? So, you know, just uh, just a big kudos on this. <laughs> right. 
very kind of you. But yeah, that's one of my goals is to make sure that you know we all uh, don't end up just siloed, right? Right. Uh, you and I might in the startup world, and it's very easy to get siloed into our day-to-day right. uh, jobs and forget all lose sight of the big picture of how you know we are how the tech sector or the tech startup ecosystem in particular also must understand these interlinkages because ultimately right. all of these uh, pieces, as you rightly said, these linkages end up shaping how uh, our future right. will pan out. So I think. So I'm glad you also have an interest in the intersection of these things. <laughs> no, no. That's really my goal. That more of us keep thinking about these interlinkages uh, and keep that in mind. Definitely, definitely. I think I think this book, you know, you know, pushes you to not think at a micro level, but start thinking at a macro level. Because I think if anybody is who is working in the tech space, they they think at the most micro level, or or at max, they'll only singularly look towards their individual company's growth, but. But one must, you know, start thinking from an industry perspective, from a nation perspective, or or even perhaps, you know, see how things link to to the global story in general. And uh, I think this book does a wonderful job in, you know, pushing you towards that. Yeah. So something very interesting Thanks. happened in, you know, parallel to the launch of your book. I think your your books your books launch is arguably the first book with a limited edition nft collectible card uh you know collection coming along with it and so you know let's talk about cryptocurrency which we briefly touched upon before uh, let's talk about cryptocurrency blockchain and you know the metaverse and uh, the web3 space in general okay and uh with decentralization at the core of web3 and you know web3 being a prominent technology frontier that can cause a paradigm shift like you talk about how it it steps on you know uh the government stores as well uh, what role do you see of nation states playing into the space as well as of big tech companies? And, you know, with the context of India, do you think the latest tax rules are a step in the wrong direction as they treat the space in a similar fashion of gambling or are they the right step forward? Sure. So see, from a, from a government standpoint, um, there are two at least lens sets of lens that I, I, I think that any government should be looking at it from. One is, as we talked a lot, which is that Web3 technologies are in a way and their, their emphasis towards decentralization is taking the initial idea of the internet forward. Right? The internet itself, the founding of the internet, uh, if you've read or, or, or heard the story of why the internet came about and what the goals of the people who were working on the internet back in the day, a few decades ago, was was to actually make sure that power doesn't get centralized. Information flows do not get centralized. Right? That there should be a decentralized network like the internet right. that right. is not controlled by a single power or a small set of firms. That was really one of the reasons, and I talk about this in the book, one of the reasons for the setting up of the internet in some ways. Or at least how it was envisioned by its founders. Right. The last decade is not how it's played out. The last decade has seen counterintuitively that even though the internet was supposed to be a decentralizing force right. power and information the control of it has gotten centralized infrastructure remains decentralized but the control of the internet has gotten centralized into a set of few firms and certain nation states who are trying to control the internet of their nations right there are countries that are trying to build their own national internets as opposed to a global interoperable internet um, and so from the government standpoint, I think one of the views or on the lens is still that Web 3.0, 
is yet another attempt to further decentralize. In a way, it's good because it's trying to decentralize power away from the big tech firms. So you need, you're seeing new leaders emerge in the crypto and Web3 space that are not necessarily the Google and Facebooks of the world, right? So in a right. way, interestingly, as I mentioned in the book a little bit, technology itself is ensuring that that tech and control of tech doesn't become centralized, right? So even though governments through their regulation and antitrust and all of that are trying to you know, uh, limit the power and strength of the big tech firms, Interestingly enough, tech itself might have an answer to this, right? That could work right. actually more effectively than antitrust regulations, right? right? Um, whether or not the US government is able to limit the power of Facebook or Meta or other, we don't know how that will pan out. But I do think that Web3, blockchain, crypto, a lot of these developments in the Web3 world might actually create new winners who are not affiliated with, let's say, Meta or alphabet and other. And so that's one thing for the governments to keep in mind that this is a larger decentralization move uh, in a historical context. The second piece that I think India is maybe not thinking about as much, but we should, is that this is yet another opportunity to win. Right? In the web 1.0 and web 2.0 worlds, right? we were still relatively behind, I would say, the US and some other countries when it came to setting up the foundational layers of that world or that architecture of that world, right? Web 1.0, Web 2.0, all the infrastructure, architecture layers, the operating systems of that time, Android, Apple, the browsers, right? All the underlying architecture or the underlying equipment was built and developed by companies in the West, right? Um, and India did not have a role. However, I think this time around, we are now at a point where we have the capital, access to capital. We have the entrepreneurs with the experience we have a massive tech VC and startup ecosystem in play, uh, place now. And, and so we have a lot of the fundamental in place to actually now be one of the early winners in the Web 3.0 space. Right, right. And I think that's a very important perspective to keep in mind. And that now links to the question you asked about the crypto tax. Right, so now you have to have an eye on the big picture and not focus on necessarily or become over-focused on micro policy decisions. To me, the crypto tax, whether it's at 30% or 20% or 40% or 10%, in a way is a micro policy decision. I think the macro policy decision that's needed in this country, in India, and not just from a private sector or from a public sector standpoint, but actually, I would say both private and public, and I would say the nonprofit sector that works on, let's say the policy issues around tech. We must as a nation say, here's another opportunity, by the way, for us to win and win big as a nation, because unless we win big as a nation economically, we're not gonna become a political power, we're not gonna become a geopolitical power, we're not gonna become a major power in the world unless we have won economically. China is a clear example of that. Right. right? They right. 30 years of massive economic development, now they're at a point where, you know, whether or not that's the right decision that's a separate matter that they engage in geopolitical conflict, but economic power has to precede everything else. and. To me, Web 3.0 is a massive economic opportunity for the Indian uh, nation, for the Indian tech startup ecosystem, for the Indian VC world, right? Where we can now build com companies, hopefully, that are not always burning money. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, I I've talked about this a lot in recent days that, you know, you combine all our unicorns and the cash balances that they have or the profits that they have, 
the grand addition of all of that, the grand sum of all of them will not equal, I think, even one of the large US big tech firms' uh, profits, right? Right, right, right. right? We were the shining jewel in the crown of the British also, right? But that didn't mean that we became rich or we became powerful or we became or our entire nation developed, right? Our entire million people or million people at that time did well. No, right? Uh, So today we are still a consumer market in many ways and we need to move away from being that talent nation and a large internet market to becoming a key player and I think Web3 is the probably an amazing opportunity for us to be a key sort of player in that architecture layer, infrastructure layer and build the core and companies like Polygon etc. I find very uh, sources of optimism because right. we are actually building some of the foundational layers today and so if we have that more of that enable more of that policy should be enabling all of this Right. right. Um, while maintaining your sovereign functions, I, I don't think that India as a nation will uh, give up its sovereign control of currency or national security or foreign policy. And I think that's fair. But I think from an economic standpoint, we must put in enabling policy for India to win big in Web3. And right. climate tech, for example, by the way. I argue in the book, in the last section, that climate tech is an equally big, if not bigger opportunity than the internet was right. over the right. two right. decades. Right. And we must not talent. Or as a threat, right? I mean, I think sometimes our instinct in India is to see any new technology as a threat. Right, right, right. right. You must not must see it as an opportunity and then say, oh, how do we manage the risks associated with it? Right. Let's see it as an opportunity. Great job of that. Whether out of a strategy or otherwise, but they look at things as an opportunity and then manage risks. We look at things like a risk (laughs) with opportunity. I think we need to flip our perspective on that. That, that, is, that is, I think, a wonderful summary of, uh, you know, what you just mentioned. And uh, just wanted to give you, a, you know, just an FII that we actually had, a, we are here at the end of our podcast, actually had, had an opportunity to speak to, uh, you know, Jayanti Kanani, the CEO of Polygon. And we actually got his perspective on this too, which is available uh, in our archive. And, you know, you can always, uh, uh, you know, you can give that a listen. I now want to, I know, that, that that is great. Thank you for that. I would actually now like to ask you two questions, which actually, you know, uh, borrow from your experiences as a VC and as the co-founder of IIF, you know. So the first question I want to ask you is, uh, you know, a question that directly, you know, looks at your work as a VC to your work on the great tech game. So across all of your investments as a part of IIF, what instances at a startup's level did you note that directly play into the themes that you you know talk about in your book? It could be a particular country showing uh, showing interest in a particular startup's product, or you know even the sudden impact of a fat tail geopolitical event on a, on a, on a one of your invested companies' uh, you know growth. So so you know uh, I would love to see that uh, you know you talk about that linkage between your work as a VC and and the themes of your book. Sure. Uh... You know, so uh, many examples, actually, right? So you'll find that the flow of capital, right? Uh, as you rightly said, also, I think alluded to is, is often driven by geopolitical concerns. Right? the last two, three years, I've seen a massive uh, boom in the startup ecosystem in India, right? You've seen the creation of many unicorns. You've seen the creation of um, many companies that, um, have raised much, much bigger rounds of capital today than they were probably likely to, let's say, three years ago. Even. Right. Right now, now, there are two reasons that are driving that. One is 
a lot of the capital that is flown in the Indian ecosystem was coming in from the US, uh, Japan, of course, China also till a certain period. Now, but, you know, the big boom in the flow of capital into the startup ecosystem, many of our companies have benefited from this uh, in our portfolio and otherwise, that the capital has stopped flowing. A lot of the capital from Europe and America, US has stopped flowing as easily as it was to China. Understood. Right. And it's not going to it, right? Um, and that's a clear geopolitical implication, right? We might think that oh, suddenly the Indian startup ecosystem changed in the mm-hmm. last year. Something happened. And now right. we have become better. We have become big. Well, maybe we have. I think I do think that the quality of entrepreneurs and quality of our VCs, etc., is increasing, right? Every year because we are we are growing. We are learning as a community, etc. That's true. But to me, the big reason maybe unspoken about, but I think a lot of people realize this, has been because of the geopolitical developments, right? That's one. Second, some startups have benefited specifically by the withdrawal of Chinese competitors, as I mentioned, right? Um, And I have have companies in our portfolio without naming particular ones that benefited from this because their competitors were now not in the market anymore. Right, right. right? Only their market shares grew, their user bases grew, whether they were in gaming, whether they were in content, Right. Um, so, so, so many such examples exist where startups then benefited directly. Now, many also suffered, as we were saying earlier in our conversation, right? And 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 that's why it's very important to have an eye on the geopolitical implications because now we are a country that is being very much uh, seen in the middle of these geopolitical uh, calculations, right? Uh, we're no longer not a we are we're a very significant player now in geopolitical. Calculation. As a result, any startup founder must be thinking about geopolitical risk, geopolitical opportunity. That maybe wasn't the case ten years ago. Maybe ten years ago we didn't have to think like that. But right today, I think all entrepreneurs have to think like that. Right, right. That that is that is absolutely correct. Anurudh, I have one last question for you, and this is something we ask every guest on the podcast. Uh, keeping your experience as a venture capitalist in mind, as well as you know your experience as the author of the great tech game. What advice do you have for other aspiring Indian arts or entrepreneurs? Uh, well, read my book and tell me like how you guys liked it <laughs> or what, what your thoughts are. I'd love to uh, who get the opportunity to read the book. And uh, I'd love to engage more deeply with folks who have thoughts on any of the themes I've raised. Because one of the goals for me is also to have this conversation started. Right. And right. I think you're doing a great job with with India not uh, to that extent that you are making these conversations happen on a broader set of topics than just who's raised what round and who's a unicorn now versus others. I think the conversation needs to be broader and, and I hope that this sparks many more conversations, not just between me and you or me and others, but between folks, right? Um, as we were just discussing, that's one. Um, second, I would say as far as lessons or key takeaways for entrepreneurs is concerned, right? Um, Or people who want to become entrepreneurs in the coming years, uh, or even young professionals who might be listening, is that, you know, to me, from a historical context standpoint, today, we are standing at a point where we must be thinking about how this game will play out in the future. um, And how we can place ourselves as individuals, as families, as uh, as a nation, uh, to win in this game. Right? We, right, we must think big one and we must think towards the future. Right. I, I, I often say to people who ask me this, 
even in my extended family etc people are starting up their career now is that to me you know think of almost the an, an analogy i draw is that think of yourself in 1750 right where the industrial era is just starting you haven't actually seen how it'll play out for the next 200 250 years right? right but today we have the hindsight benefit of that think of yourselves as if you were a professional in 1750 right what does what kind of companies what kind of opportunities do you want to devote your lives to keep this context in mind that the next 100 200 years are going to be shaped by technology not just internet technology but by climate technology but biotechnology ai and and these forms of technology you don't see them as something that you don't understand or something that you fear right even if you're not from a tech or engineering background look at these technologies in the way that even if you understand them from a broader standpoint you'll be able to place your skills your interests in the larger scheme of the tech world right everyone in the tech world is not a techie right everyone who benefited from the industrial era growth was not a industrial engineer right, right? Um, so so we need as many people who are experts in other parts or other fields to be part of the tech world right so increasingly i'll give you an example the tech world about a decade ago didn't have any policy heads there right. were no policy heads at uh, at at companies you know like flipkart etc Right. They first started right, right? 2007, even 2010, 12. It's a recent phenomenon, but where com- companies have realized that their influence, their work, is now intersecting with so many pieces that now you need a lot more people who bring other expertise into the tech world, right? And so we'll see a diversification of the experts, whether it's marketing, consumer acquisition, psychology, right. philosophy, policy. so you can come at it from your vantage point as a professional right uh, you don't have to become a tech founder straight away right uh, a tech startup founder but find your role in this great tech game and then you know think of your career like that for the next 30 40 50 years right uh, so that be i think my broad lesson um or broad key, key takeaway i think for younger professionals today to right. about their careers from a you know, starting standpoint like think of it like that Uh, that that is a uh, wonderful anirudh and, and very aptly put and uh, thank you so much for joining us today anirudh uh, we wish you the very best for the future and hope to see many more books come out of that wonderful mind of yours and <laughs> thank you very much gautam very kind of you uh, and thank you for having uh, having me on your podcast but also great job on doing i think a podcast that uh, as i said earlier covers uh, a broad set of themes issues broadly i think that's a great uh, service for the tech ecosystem as well thank you thank you so much for that and uh, once again uh, folks who are listening uh, listening to this podcast i highly recommend the great tech game this book is now available at you know multiple bookstores uh, i think all around uh, all around the country so do go and grab your you know do go and grab your uh, copy today <laughs> great thank you so much gautam Thank you. Thank you so much everyone for joining us for this episode. The Internet Podcast is available on YouTube, Apple Music, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook to receive all all updates on the upcoming episodes. We'll see you in the next one.